0: Somehow, in the course of the evening, I want to, tonight, talk about our relationship to meditation, relationship to practice. Uh, And hopefully, in the course of doing that, hopefully inspire you to have a a different relationship with your practice, one that that will Mm -hmm. help you much more easily engage in a hundred-day retreat or regular practice or uh, something that um, that is that you want to do something that gives you gladness gives you joy not something you do as a grim duty you know as alan watts says something you do is a kind of you do it because it's good for you a kind of self-punishment that's the that's completely the wrong approach in fact just while i'm on this topic I, was, I heard from the, from the teachings, and I'm not sure whose teachings they were, but I heard it through a, a monk, a German monk named Anilayo. He said there are basically two ways to get a donkey to move. One is to kick them in the rear. The other is to put a carrot in front of their face. The carrot is the better way. You want to have something that gives you a a feeling of of wanting to, of delight, pleasure even. Um, And you know, kicking yourself, pushing yourself, uh, cajoling yourself into practice. uh, That's never sustainable. You really want that, whatever that is for you, that is that carrot. Uh, And it reminds me what I wanted to mention at the beginning of the Talk is that this is the 17th anniversary of 9/11, a really seminal moment in our in our world's history and in our country's history, and you know I'm just I'm aware of of the reverberations from that day. I do a lot of traveling to teach, and so the most obvious way that I see it every day is the every time I travel, which is almost, I'd say almost every other week, to different places in, around the U.S. and Canada. What I mostly see is people tormented by the, the amount of security. That whole security apparatus came up, came out of that time, a reaction to that time. And of course, all the Islamophobia and the just the the habit of the human mind, and then co- communities in general, when they when they are um, when they are um, they experience some kind of harm, to go into uh, very extreme reactive measures. And we can tell by our own mind stream that our habit of dealing with things that are hard to bear is that we go into reaction. We go into fight or flight. We go into, into aversion and anger and irritation and frustration. We go into uh, incessant uh, grasping and seeking and distracting and wanting. All these reactive patterns that actually make it uh, difficult to... Uh, to deal with our life that actually compounds the stress of our own individual life and you can see as a group we've compounded the stress uh, in our collective by the way that we have uh, by the way our reactive mind others people other people how we create the the so-called enemy and and then project our ill will and all of our proliferation what we call papancha our our mental fabrications we project it onto the the object of our our fear and our ill will and pretty soon we're living in a virtual reality where these where the world is dangerous and then we we can we will say even in the course of conversation that's dangerous but but the danger starts in our minds and that's something that we can we can actually resolve to a certain degree our practice as I often share the words of Sri Nisargadatta where he says that the world is the way it is because people are the way they are and as long as people are the way they are the world will be the way it is and if we want a peaceful wise loving world do we have to have peaceful wise and loving people it's not something you can impose through laws and rules and security But I also, I was actually kind of gladdened today, and uh, Howie back there will be glad to know that I'm a regular NPR listener. And today I listened to an interview with, with uh, I think Thomas Kane and Lee Hamilton, who were the former senators who were, uh, who headed the commission after 9-11 for studying, uh, extreme extremists and terrorists, and and discover how that happens and how, what the world can do about it, what c- we can do about it. And the conclusion they came, the updated conclusion, is that that the unstable countries, unstable governments, uh, countries that without basic needs of water and roads and safety. And you know, very poor governance are fertile grounds for, for people to become reactive and frustrated and then uh, to find to find someone to blame, just is what I just talked about, and, and then fed with, with some kind of distorted philosophy will go um, cause some harm, and that what what these two senators, what their commission found is that what we really need to do is to not so much keep responding to everything with might and fight and, and do two people. Instead of, um, instead of doing two people, we work with people. We find out what they need and we try to support them. It's, just, it's not rocket science. It's obvious. And to me, it's the same concept when it comes to our own personal practice. We don't, we, don't, um, put, do, we don't put ourselves into practice. We don't do it to ourselves. We don't do it as that grim duty. We don't do it as self-punishment. We do it uh, as a way of supporting ourselves. So it's really essential at the beginning of a commitment to practice to Consider your aspiration. What is it that you... Why practice? What do I, what do I want from the practice? What, what, what do I want to, to accomplish? Uh, what do I want for myself? What's, and I think in terms of... When I think of what I want, I think in terms of... of at least what I want is... I use the language of the Dharma. The, the language of the Dharma has these two words. Kusala and akusala. Kusala is... Uh, wholesome helpful that which which brings gladness that's which brings happiness and a is that which is unwholesome and unhelpful and what I want to do and why I practice I want to to keep generating and for me it's for the benefit of all beings for the benefit who uh, whoever crosses my path and as many ways as it can ripple I want to cultivate the wholesome so that so that my life impacts people in a way that brings well-being and happiness and every day and one of the ways of really starting any moment of practice even a, a even if it's a quickie where you're just stopping in the middle of the day and finding your body finding your breath tracking your body, tracking your mood, tracking your thoughts, even a, a one minute practice period you could start it with an aspiration. What I start every practice period and how I end every practice period is an aspiration. You didn't know that before I rang this bell both beginning and at the end I say may this sitting be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings and may whatever I offer be dedicated to the welfare of all beings, and may my life be dedicated to the welfare of all beings. Now, I've been doing this now for about 30 years, and there was somewhere along the line that just using my conceptual mind, giving rise to an aspiration, just the, because when, I, when you use your conceptual mind to orient toward what's kusala, what's wholesome, it touches into something in us that it has that intrinsically, has that innately. I think when I say you want to be happy, do you resonate with that? When I say you want to be free of suffering, do you resonate with that? It's, you don't have to create that place in you, you know it already. It's the thing that the Dalai Lama says unites all of us. Every being Every sentient being wants to be happy and wants to be free of suffering. That's what binds us. That's what unites us. But when I started doing that, at first I, I took it as a teaching from the Tibetan tradition, which is the, the, the arousing. They had this concept, and at first it seemed like a conceptual framework that didn't have much resonance to me. It didn't, um, it just seemed... Like, oh, that's what Buddhists do. And it was uh, the, the cultivation of, the, of what's called bodhicitta, which is the awakened mind that's dedicated. Uh, the, you, you awaken uh, for the purpose of benefiting all beings. And that this bodhicitta is something that you can cultivate. And so I said, hmm, I'll try it. And I had been, my first teacher's uh, first intro to the Dharma was, was uh, in... Um, in India and uh, I don't need to tell the story tonight but I went to I was sent by the Dalai Lama to the teachers that were teaching Westerners and for several days I heard these teachings and I said okay I'm gonna put it to put it to practice I'm gonna try it and once I started with this bodhicitta practice just just making simple dedications I made up my own version there's some classic ones but I don't even know what they are but I made up my own version and after a very short time or after you know, maybe a few years I noticed that every time I would get to that point may my life be for the benefit of all beings I would feel myself literally being taken over. It was like my life no longer belonged to me. It was less of, a little less of me, my, mine and a little more of, of I am part of a, a sea of of interbeing of interconnectedness and what I do what I do with my body my speech and my thoughts it impacts everyone and I want to dedicate my life and my practice to bringing the wholesome to to everyone now for me that was in, that became very inspiring and I love that feeling of of being taken over by something larger than myself and Sometimes we can get so preoccupied with our own internal view of lack that we can forg- we can lose touch with that, with that um, that that radiance, the natural radiance of our being. That is um, that's, that's really amazing when you sit. Somebody used this image in a teaching I heard recently, where where you sit and you build up a little. It's as though you're you're turning on the light of attention and you've got this curtain around you. And slowly, slowly in your practice, you just start lifting the curtains, lifting the curtains. And the light that you've generated just starts naturally spreading. And it it just kind of, and you're, so the circle of your affection, the circle of your joy, the circle of your attention—the your, the very nature of your mind widens uh, beyond this, this little, you know, beyond the curtain and beyond the, especially beyond the, the limitations of our self-story, which is very—it's often in a loop of—it's a loop of lack. That's—I never said that before—a loop of lack. So how can we work with ourselves to, um, to, to encourage this sense of, of uh, practice, of waking up, and for me it's starting with an aspiration, and then, and hopefully you'll take this to heart when you practice. You know, you can, I think, a little reflection right now about what is your relationship to practice. Do you do it as a, as a duty, as a, something you should because it's good for you? Uh, you know, how do you approach your, your zafu? Do you just do it, you put in your time, or is there a kind of reverence? Or do you see it as an amazing opportunity to step out of the stream of distress? Into into um, and step out of the chronic obsessive uh, obsession with what's next and doing to just a, a a place of being. So is it the the sense of of anticipation? Is there a, what are your associations? I'm curious. Do you have positive associations for going to your cushion? Both. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Any kind of Oh, so you think of it in terms of like any kind of, any kind of exercise. Yeah, I mean, because I, I feel like it's exercise for my brain uh-huh. versus exercise for my body, but to have that same initial. <laughs> yeah, the initial, I don't want to really do this. Yeah, I don't want to do this. Uh huh. Like The more you build into a habit, the shorter that little yeah, interval of resistance. Or, is, I, well I'll said. Just try to not think about the starting. I don't know, maybe I have um, transitions can be harder to switch from one thing to another. Transitions can be hard. So, you focus have you ever done a little aspiration before you start? Uh, yes. Yeah, I highly recommend it. I think that it will make that transition a little bit more graceful. No, thank you. So Where was I? Oh, so I'm, I would like for you to have the, the kind of joy that I have when I sit down. And I'll, so I'll just share a little bit of what I've been, in recent years, what I've really been appreciating when I sit down, and it makes it a little bit easier for me to sit down. Now, when I talk about akusala a, a unwholesome, that really talks, that's really that state of resistance. And it's beautiful what you just described, and it fits right into what I'm about to say. Sometimes we have what are called, we have unwholesome ha- mental habits. And one of those is, and five of those are what we call the five hindrances. The, the mind that is in a state of hunger, thirst, lack, craving. State of, of ill will, aversion, frustration, irritation. That's the aversion. Then there's the restlessness and worry or agitated. And the aversion includes the resistance. And then we have, we have uh, dullness. Somebody said today that I forgot they used this great word when I was talking to them. Uh, bogged down, this kind of mental state of feeling bogged, you know, kind of flattened. And then the mental state, really common mental state of, of doubt, confusion, uncertainty. Those are kind of part of the same class called doubt. Now when you sit, if you, if you manage to just sit for a moment, like maybe this moment as we're sitting here together, if your mind... If you're simply aware in a moment, you're aware of your sitting body, aware of sitting in this room, you may check, and I, I've been taking a lot more delight in this lately, check to see if my mind has any defilements and any hindrances, any of these unwholesome forces. And when I, when I notice that, is, that I'm just here and aware, I notice that it's without hindrances, I rejoice in that. I take delight in the fact that that in a moment here, and it's easy to miss these moments, and it's easy to associate meditation with the moments where you have strong resistance. And that's sometimes what we remember. And even in this moment where I notice that I'm aware and I'm free of any hindrances and I rejoice in that, Even if when I stop and take a look at the state of my mind, which is what I'll I'll often do that, I'll say, you know, what's in my mind right now? Is it, does it have any hindrances in it? And if I notice a hindrance, if I notice that I'm kind of itching to get on with it or I'm resistant or something, at that moment, I recognize that because I'm aware of that feeling of resistance, aware of that desire, aware of that restlessness or worry, aware of the doubt, aware of the dullness, I rejoice in the fact that I'm not overcome by that hindrance. I'm not being dragged along by it. So I rejoice in the absence of it. I rejoice in the presence of it, the fact that I'm not overwhelmed by it. So that's a, it's a source of gladness that's really important. Again, I want I to want care it. I want it to feel good don't want to I don't want to kick myself into practice so next if I've gotten myself if I've gotten my tush on the kush and I've established the posture then I I let my mind drop into my body just like my body has dropped to the floor mind in the body like the body is to the floor and I, tr- I just feel that for a moment and then what I've been doing lately, I've been rejoicing at the fact that there is this body. And you can you can have a little reflection. The body with its senses. You know, this is where the, the Buddha really waxed about this. He said, it's within this fathom long body where we find the, the universe. We find the world. Without this body, no universe, no world within this fathom body long body lies the the world lies the cause of the world you know wh- how we actually work with this body our reactions to what enters our senses determines the world that we keep manufacturing in our mind but in this body lies the end of the world where we come to the end of grasping the end of condemning the end of becoming the end of suffering is right here in this body and this body is where the path lies it, and the path goes nowhere. So when I find this body, I go, I'm home. I am so thankful for this body. And then if I hang out a little bit, it doesn't take long. I'll see that the body is breathing. That's you know how I start most of the sittings here on Tuesday, you know, feel the sensations of sitting, but then notice the sensations that are created by your body's breath. Notice that your body's breathing. Then I rejoice at the fact that i have this life breath that connects me to to the atmosphere that every all of us are sharing you know it's again one of those ways that i remember that i don't exist alone apart from everybody not only that i am i rejoice in this breath that when i attend to it when awareness lights on it and stays with it it calms the body it calms the mind it helps develop focus and I rejoice in the in the focus I rejoice in the concentration that comes and the calm that comes and in the clarity that comes when my mind and body are in the um, in the same location with a little buildup of energy I rejoice at the uh, the increasing sense of aliveness So if I if I just reflect a little bit and just tune into the just the weirdness of it all just the the unexplainableness of bodies and breaths and and senses and mind which is just you know and or you know teeth and hair and I mean it's all so bizarre unexplainable this existence itself but I but I'm left with a feeling of not because somebody told me to I'm left with a feeling of gratitude and again not not maybe none of the world's problems have been have been fixed but somehow and th- there may not be any peace in the world but there's somehow I'm for a moment I'm at peace with the world and I f- and I feel grateful so to even to do a, li- a few minutes of gratitude practice at the beginning of your sitting and I, for my own gratitude practice, that's come out of my meditation experience. You know, when you're, if you, if once your mind and body are a little calm, and you feel the, you no longer feel the body as the body. You feel it as a, you feel it as a field of sensations, and then the sensations kind of melt into a same, a feeling of sameness. It's just the stillness of body. It just there's this kind of sameness, and even. The the body sensations mingle with the space of awareness. I don't know if this language makes sense, but the body sensations mingle with the space of awareness, and there's a kind of melting into the this body into this openness, and there's just feeling of wholeness, and it doesn't feel as I don't feel bound in this sensation or that. It just gets really harmonious in a way. Very unpleasant sensations can be part of that. But there's a sameness as it melts into the, the, quali- the, the sense of space. It's like there's space in the body, space out of the body. And our mind has that kind of capacity for vacuousness. So if I get a little taste of that, I'll just, oh, gratitude, grateful. And so my practice starts often with, besides the aspiration these days, it starts with with the words of, of um, Thoreau, where he said, I am grateful for what, and the reason I said it came out of my practice, it was this sense of sameness, this kind of melting, the sense of not doing mindfulness, not doing meditation, but more being lucidly present, including everything. But... It goes like this, I'm grateful for what I am and what I have. My thanksgiving is perpetual. It's surprising how contented one can be with nothing, oh shoot, with, it's surprising how contented one can be with nothing definite. Only a sense of existence. Existence. Oh, how I laugh at my vague, indefinite riches. For no run on my bank can drain it. For my wealth is not possession, but enjoyment of being. So, the, a little gratitude, just gratitude for whatever you notice. I, You know, that for me, it's that just sense of, of being. Because when there's being, it's not I'm being somebody. I'm not being measured. I'm just being, being lucidly aware. Whatever it is it, that that gives you a, enough gladness to practice, find it. Find the pleasure of the breath. Find the pleasure of sitting. Find the pleasure of of your aspiration. Do what brings glad that brings a, a delight to your heart. Not practice as a grim duty. I'll leave you. With the words of Alan Watts often read on Tuesday nights over the years he says we could say that meditation doesn't have a reason or doesn't have a purpose in this respect it's unlike almost any all other things that we do except perhaps making music and dancing when we make music we don't do it in order to reach a certain point such as the end of the composition if that were the purpose of music, then obviously the fastest players would be the best. Also, when we're dancing, we don't—we are not aiming to arrive at a particular place on the floors and taking a journey. When we dance, the journey itself is the point. When we play music, the playing itself is the point. Exactly the same is true in meditation. Meditation is the discovery that the point of life is always arrived at in the immediate moment. If you meditate for, with an ulterior motive—that is to improve your mind, improve your character, to be more efficient in your life. Uh, we've got, you've got your eye on the future and you're not really meditating. The future is a concept. It doesn't really exist. There's no such thing as tomorrow. There never will be because time is always now. That's one of the things we discover when we stop talking to ourselves and stop, start, and stop thinking. We we see that there is only the present, only an eternal now. So one meditates for no reason at all except for the enjoyment of it. Here I would interpose that the essential principle that meditation can be fun. It's not something you do as a grim duty. The trouble with religion today is it's so mixed up with grim duties. You do it because it's good for you. It's a kind of self-punishment. Meditation, when correctly done, has nothing to do with all that. It's a kind of digging the present. It's a kind of grooving with the eternal now. And it brings us to a place, to a state of peace, where, where we see that the point of life is here and now, I can't read it. It's, I've read it so many times that it's faded away. Anyway, may you all find joy in practice May you all be, uh, like the Buddha was called Sukhya, the happy one. He wasn't called the miserable meditator. He was called the happy one. May you all be the happy ones, Sukhya's. And thank you for your practice. Thanks for your generosity. Hope to see you next Tuesday. See ya. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.